Our gospel reading this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar, but on the lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if it's not healthy, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, Consider whether the light in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, with no part of it in darkness, it will be as full of light as when a lamp gives you light with its rays. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. So let me start by thanking Pastor Amy for giving me the opportunity to speak today. Something I actually asked to do, even though I feel slightly guilty about it, because I'm going to deprive all of us of one of Amy's great sermons, more expert sermons for sure, so bear with me. But I did ask to speak this week, the week before Consecration Sunday, so I can talk a little bit about why I think it's important to seed the work that we do here as a congregation and out in our community with our time and our talent, and our gifts. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Erin Bramajim. I'm Riviera United Methodist's stewardship chair for the second year, and I'm also a third-generation member of this church, which means that many of you have known me since well before I could spell stewardship, so <laughs> cheers to that. Um, a few weeks ago, Pastor Amy asked us to contemplate three questions around who and what values helped us become who we are. Her third question was how we see or hope to see these essential values and ideals represented in our day-to-day choices in life. This church has been a big part of answering those first two questions for me, the who and the what values have shaped me. But over the past two years, I've spent nearly every day thinking about that third question, how I hope to see and live these values and these ideals every day. And this shift came for me in the form of a new job. So I spent the first 15 years of my professional career working as a civilian for the U.S. Navy, for the Air Force, and throughout the intelligence community. And then even though when my husband Pete and I moved back from D.C. to California in 2008, I kept my job in D.C. and spent the next nine years shuttling back and forth, as well as to many other places around the world. So with two small kids at home, this was not ideal. (laughs) I was very tired. In 2017, a friend sent me a job posting for a newly established office in uh, the mayor of Los Angeles' team, Office of International Affairs. So I applied immediately. After several interviews and emails, I was actually in Seoul, South Korea, and I got a phone call from who would become my new boss. And Nina said, so we're not going to hire you for the job you applied for, but we just won the Olympic and Paralympic Games for 2028. Would you be interested in a position as our director of Olympic and Paralympic development? I was like, of course, that sounds great. And she said then, have you heard of the sustainable development goals? I said, no, not really. (laughs) But as a lifelong fan of the Olympics, I was really excited about this turn of events. And it was also 2 a.m. in Seoul, so I just said, yes, this is great. (laughs) And I'll look them up. So I did. And I I learned over the next couple weeks that the Conrad Hilton Foundation had funded a pilot effort around the idea 
that the Sustainable Development Goals would be good for Los Angeles and a good way to think about how we can prepare ourselves to host the world in 2028. But what I didn't yet understand was that even though five months later I'd be back in Korea for the 2018 Winter Olympics, when it was definitely very cold, also very cool, but very cold, that the chance to think about sustainable development means that my, like, the chance to do that for my hometown has been much cooler, much cooler part of my job. So I'm going to ask you real fast, and we'll see if Annie can put up this slide. Uh, have you ever heard of the Sustainable Development Goals? Just show of hand. Yay, my parents. <laughs> so how many of you have seen this logo before? Have you ever seen this color wheel? Good job, Mom. So this color wheel is a logo that represents 17 goals, 17 sustainable development goals, which we also call the global goals because the sustainable development goals is kind of a terrible name. SDGs doesn't sound great, but that's what you get when you have a product of the United Nations, 193 member states that came together and actually picked these goals. I didn't know any of this two years ago. I had to Google them. I figured it out. But now I'm a believer. So what are they? In the shortest version, these 193 member states got together in 2013 at the United Nations and started talking about what they could agree on would make the world a better place. And two years later, in 2015, they unanimously decided, 193 nations unanimously decided that these 17 goals were what they wanted to pursue together. So let's flip through them if we could to the next slide. They're big. You probably won't be able to see them from here, but I'll read them to you. So goal number one is no poverty. Goal number two is to end hunger. Goal number three is for everyone to have good health and well-being. Goal number four is for quality education. Number five, to achieve gender equality. Six, for clean water and sanitation. Number seven, for renewable energy. Eight, decent work. Nine, industry and innovation, sustainable buildings for number uh, 11, or number 10, sorry, reduced inequalities. Number 11, as I mentioned, sustainable cities and communities. Number 12, responsible consumption and production. Number 13, climate action. 14, life below water, that's our oceans. Number 15, life on land, that's our biodiversity. Goal 16 is for peace, justice, and strong institutions. And goal 17 is for global partnerships. So this is a lot, but I'll hearken back to the, the scripture reading from last week from Habakkuk, who says, write a vision, make it clear, <laughs> put it out there. Right? Does this look right to you? Is this the world that we want? Is this the future that we want? These 17 things? The good news is that there's a timeline to try to achieve these, which makes them even more audacious. This is the agenda for 2030. So we have 10 years to achieve these things. And I think unless you be skeptical and feel that there's too many and they're too broad and too conflicting, I would agree with you. They are. But I'd also ask you, like, what do we take off this list? What, what's not important from among these 17? And why, if we're describing an agenda, a vision that can be shared by the world, why wouldn't we aim as high as we can? Now, the goals actually break into a kind of framework of 169 targets and 240 indicators that measure how the world is making progress. And these goals are interconnected and they're dependent on each other. It would be impossible to end poverty without decent work or, or quality education. 
We can't save the 6.3 million children every year who die under the age of 15 because they don't have access to medical care, clean water, or food. But imagine being able to save one of those children, and that's a child every five seconds. These dreams feel big. They feel systemic. But they can also feel really far away. And this is where I think that my job and the work of the Conrad Hilton Foundation to bring it to Los Angeles was really prescient. Because they understood that approaching these macro goals with macro solutions means that people get left out or left behind. Huge international aid programs that tackle vaccination or malnutrition, they're essential. But it's also essential for communities to take ownership and shape and sustain these solutions. So if these goals are truly the future that we want, we can't just want it for the developing world. We have to want it here, too. And that means we have to understand what poverty looks like in Los Angeles, what hunger is like for so many of our neighbors. So here in Los Angeles, we've done the work to understand that a little bit better. We have the largest percentage of people in the U.S. who are food insecure in our county. That's a nice way of saying that from day to day, they don't know if they'll have a meal. And in Los Angeles, 21% of our neighbors live below the federal poverty line. That's one in five people. One of five of every of us. So hopefully when you hear these numbers, we can realize that these two truths are not mutually exclusive, that reaching the goals should be an urgent priority for the world to alleviate suffering, some of the greatest suffering, but also that development is not just something that happens in faraway places, but in our own communities. The goals have a motto associated with them, to leave no one behind. Some call this the leave, but no, leave no one behind agenda. And our work in Los Angeles has been focused on understanding our own neighbors, not just getting a better idea of how many may be struggling, but on knowing who is here to help them. We've been working hard to play a matchmaker, using the SDGs to bring people together and make progress where we can. So only two women have ever won the Nobel Prize for economics, but I find it amazing that both of them were recognized for upending theories of public policy and how people work together. So the first was Eleanor Ostrom. She was born and raised in L.A. Showed, she showed that when communities come together to manage shared resources to collaborate, it yields better results than when government or the private sector steps in. Her work debunked the tragedy of the commons, and she reported, rep showed repeatedly that when a community agrees on a plan for the governance of shared resources, it works. As Dr. Ostrom said, little by little, bit by bit, family by family, so much good can be done on so many levels. And the second winner was Esther Duflo, who won just earlier this year. You may have read about it recently. And her work shows that there's no one-size-fits-all for solutions to alleviating poverty or to improving educational outcomes. Rather, understanding the community is critical to supporting its success. Her work has been incredibly influential in starting to change how a development happens. Slowly, we're seeing the world recognize that while lessons can be shared and adapted from one place to another, root causes are different and have to be considered every time. So community becomes really important. It establishes not only the context in which change becomes possible, but also involves all those responsible for shaping and driving that change, the collaboration required to plan on the governance of shared resources and to get to solutions. So a big part of my job every day is to think about what community in Los Angeles can do, how we can harness all those people together to help us meet these global goals. And this is not because the UN says so. This is because it's what we need to do for our neighbors. 
So if we truly want to leave no one behind, then these goals are not just about what happens far away, but what happens down the street. And I know from my work at City Hall that it's entirely dependent on how we work across government and the private and public and nonprofit and faith-based and philanthropic and academic sectors to actually bring everyone together for this goal. How successful I can be as a matchmaker with all of those different sectors depends on how I can bring people together around the needs and what they have to give to support them. So Dr. Duflo said that of her work, we should get started now. It's not going to be easy. It's a very slow process. You have to keep experimenting, and sometimes ideology has to be trumped by practicality. And sometimes what works somewhere doesn't work elsewhere. So it's a slow process, but there's no other way. These economics I'm proposing, it's like 20th century medicine. It's a slow, deliberative process of discovery. There's no miracle cure, but modern medicine is saving millions of lives every year, and we can do the same thing. She's right. And we know this because the last time the world got together and tried to do something like they're doing with the global goals was actually in the year 2000. And back then, they called them the Millennium Development Goals, and there were eight of them instead of 17. And so you can insert a joke about how 15 years managed to make the UN create eight goals into 17. It's bureaucracy in action. But the, the Millennium Development Goals were really focused around poverty alleviation and how to channel money to the developing world. They still saved about 21 million lives collectively. And so when we hear these huge numbers and we think, okay, 21 million lives in some faraway place, I can tell you that it's roughly the same size as the amount of people living in Southern California. So maybe that adds a sense of scale. But the work was not done all at once. It was done just like Dr. Ostrom said, little by little, bit by bit, family by family, from local to global. So our stewardship is about giving of ourselves in a way that serves both our congregation and our immediate community. But it is core to our calling as Christians. From the moment God said, go forth and multiply, we have been tasked with the co-creation and stewardship of our world and of each other. So I ask you, as we think about stewardship today, are these the goals that we want for our world? And if yes, we are, co we are compelled to co-create them. We are compelled to co-create this world we want. And so now, as I answer Pastor Amy's third question about how I hope to see my values and ideals represented in day-to-day -day choices, I think about the global goals, and I think about what they mean here. Our scripture today is one that I like a lot because it has this compound nature that, in my opinion, sums up what believing in Christ is all about. He lives the example, and we have to figure out how to do the same thing every day, and it's in that effort in trying to figure that out that you find God. There are actually three versions across the Gospels that kind of tell the same story. Luke eleven thirty three that we read today, as well as Mark and Matthew. And obviously in the root of the song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. But I like Luke's version best. I think because it offers more complexity, it's longer. And Jesus starts with the same statement that was captured in both Matthew and Mark, which is to say when you light a lamp, you don't hide it. You don't put it under the bed or under a basket. You hang it up. You let it shine. But Luke has him continue. He says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are open, healthy, generous, you are full of light. When they are unhealthy, unforgiving, stingy, you are putting your light under the proverbial basket. Jesus says, if you are full of light, it will be as if the light is shining on you. 
Now, Jesus is doing a whole lot of public preaching in Luke 11. He goes through the Lord's Prayer in that chapter. He exercises a demon, says a house divided against itself will not stand. He also then gives us this bit about light right before he starts yelling at the Pharisees. So you can interpret this verse to mean that he, against the convention of the time, was preaching openly, outside in the street. His message was for everyone. It was the light, not to be hidden under the basket or confined in the temple. So the light is the message, but it's also the medium, open, accessible, freely given. But the light is also about us, inside us and in how we see the world, how we see each other. More importantly, what we do with our light. When we are generous, we let our light shine. And when our light shines, Jesus says, it will be as if a light is shining on you. So let's visualize this. If I shine and you shine, pretty soon we're literally reflective. And everything is a lot brighter. I love this imagery. And for me, that's what community is all about. That's what stewardship is all about. And this is how we do the work of the United Methodist Church, how we make disciples of Christ in the world. We work to be generous. We share and give, and that light reflects off of each other, and we lift each other up out of darkness. We share this not just in worship, but we carry it outside through our ministries. We reflect into the community. Our community is local. Our church is local. But our community and our church are also global. And that's why I'm a believer in this connection and this vision of the global goals. Because I want a world with no poverty and no hunger. And it's not just for people living on the other side of the planet, but it's for my neighbors here. We leave no one behind. I believe this is the world that we want, but it's also the community we want and the church we want. So I asked to speak today because as we creep closer every day, closer these days, to the season of Advent, I want us to think about our light and our community and the importance of our stewardship. How does our church community contribute to this global agenda, both there and here? How do you want to use your light? I ask you to prayerfully consider giving both of your time and your energy and your gifts to support our church, to support we as a congregation so we reflect off each other and out into the world. Next week, we will gather here for worship and have the chance to make our pledges for the coming year. I invite you to think about how our work at Riviera and how you believe our ministries that give that answer to Amy's question of what you want to see every day how we make those values central to our daily life, I invite you to think about how we, as a congregation, can translate those aspirations into some big goals. Goals that may seem ridiculous and huge and far away, but goals that are worth it. Goals that require us to make commitments and follow through, little by little, bit by bit, family by family. Goals that bridge us to the future and to the world we want. This is what Jesus calls us to do. He calls us to be bold, and I echo that call now. I invite you not to hide your light under a basket, but instead join me and join each other so together we can light the way. I ask, especially if you've not done so before, that you join us with a pledge next Sunday. And I ask, if you have before, that you make a bold commitment to Revere and to our ministries so that what we do as a community and in our community reach those big goals. Help us set those big goals. Help us do it knowing that we have your support. Thank you for the chance to talk today. I appreciate you all so much. Thanks.